0: This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders.
1: Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan.
0: Sam, major news dropped on Wednesday as Joe Silva is exiting the promotion. And when I when I saw this news and ended up getting it
1: confirmed by sources, I was kind of like uh, Nate Diaz. I'm not surprised. Neither the UFC or Joe Silva have confirmed it publicly as we go to tape here. But the reports out there are very strong. Jason, you mentioned you have sources. lot of other reports out there so you know you got to believe that there's a lot of truth to that story and if it is true you have to congratulate joe silva he has had an illustrious career in the mma industry essentially is you know not only a hall of famer but in a lot of ways a pioneer had a lot of input on the existing rule set in mma the current unified rules you know dana white and the fertitas get a lot of credit and yes they had input but joe silva had a lot of input as well. And, you know, he's a guy that really has not been about the spotlight, does not try to call a lot of attention to himself. So, you know, you don't necessarily know all about his accomplishments, but I can tell you he's had an amazing career. If he does decide to step away, you know, I for one will be sad to see him go. Having, you know, made matches and worked in talent relations at a high level, I think I'm one of the few people in the world that have a true, true appreciation about the run he has had at high-level MMA as a vice president of talent relations.
0: You know, one of the things that has come out after all of this is I I really, and maybe I'm wrong, but the perception I get, I think, for a lot of fans is I don't think they quite grasp what a day-in and day-out schedule it is to be a matchmaker, you know, someone who's running talent, you know, talent operations, you know, because it's not a nine to five job. You know, you know, that, that phone could ring at two o'clock in the morning of it's a manager out on the West coast saying, Hey, uh, my guy's hurt or whatnot, you know, try, try to explain to our listeners what it was like for you being the vice president of talent relations for Bellator and what the day in and day out schedule was like.
1: I don't know if I could ever truly do it justice. I've, you know, walked this earth for 39 years. I've been in MMA for quite some time, but I've done a lot of other things as well. I can tell you I have never experienced anything like the craziness and the schedule, just the the, the, the chaos that exists when you're on that MMA carousel. I mean, it really isn't a carousel. It's a roller coaster. It is unbelievable. The things that you see, the things that you experience, you see some of it come out and spill over publicly, but I can tell you what goes on behind the scenes is 10 times as crazy. You know, there's a lot that goes on that takes place and transpires and has transpired. Some very epic tall tales that the general MMA fan will never know. It's just, you know, they say there's no business like show business. I would say that the show, the show business industry has got nothing on the MMA industry.
0: You know, and obviously a major difference that uh, you didn't have, you didn't have 600 fighters under your roster. You know, I did not. You know, I, I mean, well, I mean, probably what, 125, 140 was probably the max for you?
1: I would say about 150, 165. And when you're dealing with fighters, it's a offbeat walk of life. I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but any man or woman that gets into the cage and gets punched in the face for a living and punches other people in the face for a living, right then and there, there's something a little different maybe even a little off about them. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it takes a unique individual to choose professional fighting as a full-time profession. And you're dealing with unique personalities and these unique personalities that you bring into your organization. They have a unique uh, set of problems. And as the vice president of talent relations, you are the liaison. You are their main point of contact between them and the promoter, and you. when you bring them in, you inherit all of their problems. Not only problems inside the gym, inside the cage, but in a lot of ways, a lot of their problems that take place outside the realm of MMA. That gets brought into it. You do have to play the role of amateur psychologist. You have to really master the art of human relations in order to have a, a long-term run in MMA, as a matchmaker and in talent relations, it's uh, fighters. Their they have their their mind is very unique, um, very courageous in a lot of respects. But there's a lot of insecurities and a lot of dysfunction that take place outside of the cage, and that that you know is something that Joe Silva, I'm sure, has had to deal with on a regular basis. You can say, well, fighters have managers; they have agents. You would be shocked at how little client control and little trust <laughs> a lot of, that a lot of fighters have in their managers. And it's the matchmaker and talent relations guy that ends up getting that call or text at 1.30 in the morning. I mean, I would hear from guys, you know, telling me, oh, you know, my wife is leaving me. I've not seen my kids. I need help. Oh, you know, I can't do this fight. You know, call me back. Please call me back. You know, and you're the guy that's making that call and trying to talk the guy off the ledge.
0: And also, it has an effect on your personal life, too, because
1: you're essentially attached to your phone. I can tell you that the amount of hours and the commitment that I had to devote to MMA it took a tremendous toll on my personal life. People that really know me and they know about me and that listen to the show, I, you know, I'm not going to get into specifics right now. But if you know anything about me, I'm sure you could guess, you know, what that means. And it's it's you know, a testament to Joe Silva that he, you know, has been able to keep a harmonious family together with all the traveling that he has had to do all the holidays away from his family, all these, you know, recitals and, uh, you know, functions with, with family members, you know, that takes a toll and it's tough to preserve a family unit when you're, you're away from your family so much. And, you know, I'm happy that he's stepping out and not only is he stepping away, he's stepping out on top. He gets to have his cake, an idiot too. He's walking away with a large sum of money that he can essentially, from what I've been told, retire on, and now he has the ability to spend as much time with his family as he wants. I mean, he is now in the driver's seat.
0: Of course, Sam, you know, there's a, a lot of our listeners that are probably wondering,
1: has your phone rang? My phone is not uh, rung. It will not rung. It will not ring. I do not anticipate that it will ring. And uh, if it did, of course, I would take that call. I'd be a a friggin' moron not to take a call from the UFC. But I think that I've personally been on the opposing side of the aisle, Uh, you know. And for me, it was always business. You know, if if I'm hired by a promotion to do a job, I'm going to do the best job I can for that promotion. It's nothing personal. Uh, but I think that I was on the opposing side of the aisle for far too long to ever be considered a potential UFC employee, and it is what it is. I don't have any regrets about it. You know, The opportunity that I got from Bjorn Rebney and Tim Donaher many years ago was an opportunity that very few people uh, would ever be offered, but many people had wanted at that time, and to get an opportunity like that, that was not something I could say no to, and even if I had said no to it, chances are I never would have been hired by the UFC anyway or been a candidate to be hired by the UFC. Because if you look at their history, the history of their high-level positions when it comes to talent relations, those are guys that have either been, in the case of Joe Silva, with the promotion before the UFC was was the UFC, uh, and then you look at the case of Sean Shelby. That's a guy that worked his way up from the ground floor. The only really, you know, public example of Zufa working and it's not Zufa anymore. I understand that, but, uh, you know, Dana White still is a major presence there. The only time where you, we really saw an outside matchmaker come in and work under the Zufa umbrella was Scott Adams in, in, in the wake of the acquisition of world extremes cage fighting by the, by Zufa and Scott Adams didn't last there very long. You look at a lot of the companies that Zufa acquired over the years they did not retain anyone from the talent relations departments of those organizations. You look at a Rich Chu. When they acquired Strike Force, they did not retain his services. They brought Sean Shelby, and they gave him even more work, put that on his lap and said hey you know hey we just acquired the the strike force and guess what you're now the matchmaker you know have have fun you now not only are doing stuff for the lighter weights in the UFC now you've got this other promotion to to run from a talent relations standpoint so they promote within when it comes to talent relations and i highly doubt that they're going to bring in an outside matchmaker no matter how qualified they may might be no matter how good of a job they could possibly do I just don't think that's their, their system. I don't think that's their philosophy. I don't think that's the program that they run. And for all we know, they could have another Sean Shelby that they've been grooming for years. Not a lot of people were familiar with Sean Shelby when he got uh, promoted to that role. He was a guy that I believe, from, from what I understand, was working in production, uh, cutting highlight videos and producing a lot of those videos for the UFC and got uh, promoted from there and you know we gotta you gotta look at our, our aria you know his role in the current state of the ufc mm-hmm. will he want to go with an industry matchmaker type or will he prefer maybe to bring in more of a corporate level talent relations guy maybe someone that's been a, a gm or a player personnel executive for a major league baseball team or an nfl team or an nba team or will they go the lawyer route might they decide to bring in a lawyer and not just have someone there to 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 look over the contracts but someone to do a lot of high level negotiations for them you know you look at a lot of the nfl teams and from what i've been told a lot of their chief negotiators have law backgrounds
0: Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's um yeah I, I talked to somebody in the industry recently you know and they they said to me they said that their feeling was that whoever the UFC would replace Joe Silla with they probably already know who that is. Yeah. It's not something like hey we're we're going to put out a uh, an ad uh you know um that hey we're we're looking for someone to join our talent relations team that they probably already have it. But you know once the news uh got floated out there and, you know, and I said, I have sources that, that confirm to me. And as they're recording this podcast, you know, the UFC or Joe Silva. And Joe is not a guy that does media interviews anyway. They're, you might be able to find three or four interviews that he's <laughs> yeah. maybe done, uh, you know, over his time, uh, part of uh, Zufa. Um, but, you know, look, there, you know, and you know this and, and you can talk about this a lot. There's obviously there are going to be people that are going to uh, talk great things about Joe Silva. But there's also going to be people that are not going to say good things about them. And and look, and, I mean, you know, when you cover the sport, uh, you know, you hear it, whether it's from the the manager aspect or, or whether it's from the fighter aspect, or maybe it's even a coach aspect of uh, you know some things that have happened over the years. But kind of talk about you know how it, how that relationship works, and, and to the people who are kind of um, are happy that Joe Silva maybe is exiting the UFC.
1: Well, anytime an authority figure, even in the mainstream sports, anytime that guy goes, you know, the people that he's made friends with, they're going to be sad to see him go. The people that he's made enemies with, they're going to rejoice in his departure and think that it's best for their business overall. And I think the people that are negative – in a lot of cases it's immaturity and it's sour grapes you know i can tell you that when my contract wasn't renewed by bellator and that news got out there you know people would call me friends of mine would say why is this guy going on the ug and saying this about you why is this person saying you know negative about you and the, the The situation was that I was essentially a key holder to a lot of dreams of professional fighters, and I was able to accommodate and assist in some of those fighters having their dreams come true and sometimes I was the guy that was telling them no and, and rejecting them and you know I think a lot of fighters can't understand that for every single fight slot that exists on a fight promotions roster. At least at the Bellator UFC level, you're looking at 10 to 20 other guys that are vying for that same spot, and you can't sign the entire industry to your roster. It doesn't work. You can't overextend your roster and bring in more guys than your fight slots can accommodate because then you've got a lot of guys only fighting once or twice a year. You need to make sure you manage your roster wisely and that you're not overextending yourselves and the guys that are winning and being successful, that they're in a position to get three to four fights a year so that they can make a, a, a real living and make a real go at it. And to do anything less than that really is doing a, a disservice. And, you know, there was a guy, I, I can, I, I'll name him publicly that, you know, people were telling me about him. His name's Dominique the Fallen Angel Robinson. This was a guy that really wanted to get into Bellator. And, you know, I, when, when he was presented to me, and the, the funny thing was, he was presented by a guy, a kid that was in high school. And, you know, th- this kid wasn't exactly representing dominique robinson in a in a manner that i consider professional um regardless of that i still considered the guy and i looked at it and i I just didn't feel at that time he was a good fit for the organization and i was very professional and polite about it initially and i said look i don't think dominique's a good fit for the organization uh you know i I don't really have a slot that that makes sense for him right now you know maybe we'll consider him in in the future and you, you you send that message to fighters you know a lot because uh, you, you tell you, there's more no's when you're a matchmaker and then you give out more no's than you do yeses. And certain guys are adults about it. They're true athletes. They're true warriors. They handle it. They use it as fuel. They use that rejection as fuel to motivate them to, to get better and they don't take it personally. But then you've got guys that are children and you know they can't handle rejection. They're, 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 you know, they don't know how to deal with it. And they take it personally. And you, know, you're, you because you told them no and you're preventing them from doing what they want to do, you're an a-hole. For, for, and you're an a-hole for no other, no other reason than you for, – for the reason that you said no. And, you know, that's a guy, Dominic Robinson, that took some shots at me from what I've been told after I left. But, you know, he's a guy that's been trying to get into major MMA promotions for a long time. And I, I felt like, you know, this is a guy that spends more time talking about fighting for major promotions than actually going out, getting into the cage and keeping an active schedule and doing what he truly needs to do to, to get into his organization. So, you know, a lot of the negativity that I heard on the way out, you know, I, I, I considered the sources in a lot of situations. And with the negativity that, that, that Joe Silva's getting in certain aspects, you know, you got to consider the source as well. I can understand why Ben Askren would be upset, but to kind of, you know, acknowledge that, you know, it could be a good thing for, for him that, that Joe Silva's out because Joe Silva wasn't a fan of his fighting style. To to kind of highlight that, you know, that's only telling a little bit of the story because it wasn't just Joe Silva that's not a fan of Ben Askren's style. You look at Dana White and Dana White's been very critical publicly of Ben Askren. So even if Joe Silva had been gung ho on Ben Askren and wanted to bring Ben Askren in there. There, there's no there's no guarantee that Ben Askren would would, would be in the UFC right now. I, I know that John at John Nash in his tweet, and I should have the exact quote in front of me, but I don't. So I'm going to paraphrase. And John, if you're listening, I, I apologize, and I, I can correct it next week. But I think John talked about how you know certain fighters felt that and managers felt that Joe Silva was a little overbearing and, and, and heavy-handed at times. And that could be very well be true, but what you don't understand, and I'm one of the few people that can speak from this from experience, the MMA industry is very cutthroat. You have a lot of crazy characters and a lot of people that are unseemly and, uh, and unscrupulous. And if you're a pushover, if you do not have a strong background, a strong backbone, you will get rolled over in this industry. You will not make it a day in talent relations, working with fighters, if you're soft. And, you know, when you, you take hits as a matchmaker. You have people come at you that attack you. And if you don't hit back, you no one is going to respect you and you're not going to last. And your promoter is going to be looking for your replacement within hours. It's just, that's just the reality of the situation. So, you know, I can empath I can not only sympathize with Joe Silva. If he was heavy handed at times, I can empathize with him. Sometimes you do need to rule with an iron fist because there's so many people out there trying to take advantage of you. Not only will they lie to you, but they will lie about you. In order to get what you want, because in, in, in a lot of situations, you are the last man standing between them getting their big commission if they get their fighter in or their fighter minting themselves by achieving their dream. And that's just you know, how, how the, the cookie crumbles because you're just rejecting so many different people and you're put in the unenviable position where you have to say yes or no. And some people can handle no and some people can't, you know, Jerry Millen, who is a guy that I respect and has helped me out a lot, you know, in my MMA career, took a pot shot at Joe Silva. And I I didn't agree with that pot shot because he's saying that, you know, essentially Joe Silva was forced out. This is what happens when there's takeovers. You know, if if you think that he's leaving on his own volition, then that then you might be naive. And that's I don't think that's the case at all, because, yes, there's new ownership at the UFC level. But Dana White is still a major factor in the decision making process in the ufc and he's still an owner and he's incredibly loyal to the people that he believes have been with him from the start and joe silva has been there with him from the ground floor and if dana white did not want joe silva to leave he would go to war with ariel Manuel, and probably would that's probably something he would resign over if 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 he felt joe silva was wrongfully being forced out i don't think dana white would be with the ufc right now and the fact that joe silva You know, the reports are that he's going to finish out the year working for the UFC. That doesn't that that to me does not seem like a force out. That to me suggests the guy that got his money and, you know, has had enough fun on the MMA roller coaster and wants to get off the ride and go live his life like a normal person.
0: You know, um, there's a lot you said there. And, you know, one thing is, and I talked about this at the beginning of the show. By the way, we should mention that we do have an interview uh, with Rob Macy of the Mafa, coming up on, on this edition of the m a Insiders podcast. But, um, you know, and when I said at the beginning of the show that I was not surprised about this because this wasn't something that just all of a sudden came out of the blue.
1: It was this, rumored for the last two years.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been rumored for for well sometimes. And I think that... And I think this is where I think a lot of people can can relate to it. Is you know you're at a job and you're you know you put in a lot of hours where you just get burnt out, you know. And and I always wondered that you know I always wonder about that with with some of the UFC personnel when when you think about. Uh, you know, the amount of fight cards they're doing. I mean, you just, you just think about all the the fight cards they're doing, you know, uh, you, you just look at the rest of the year. I think there's like only one or two weekends where there's not a UFC yeah. event. I mean, there's a, nope. uh, you know, a date in November where, you know, there's a fight pass card in the afternoon and there's an FS1 uh, fight at night. I mean, it's, I mean, the UFC is a well, old machine. So, you know, there's times where you can't help but sit there and go, I mean, there's people there that are probably pulling. Eighty ninety hour weeks. I mean, it, it, Sam, when you were running town relations, could you put a number of hours you put in a work week? When yeah, you came oh,
1: to. I, yeah, sorry, to cut you off there. I mean, that's that's an easy question for me to answer because I would count it at times. When I first started Bellator, when they were transitioning from ESPN Deportes to, to and going to Fox Sports Net, the the roster changed. I mean, the the turnover was dramatic. I think basically the from the roster that I inherited. Only five guys were retained, and I had basically had to start from scratch, and I was working 90-hour weeks. It was, it was insane between the travel, the phone calls, all the scouting that I had to do, all the video that I was watching, all the negotiations and the recruiting. And then I would have to do the, the, the grotty work too. I was writing the, the bout agreements. I was filing the bout agreements. I was overseeing medicals. Now, as time progressed and the promotion grew, we brought in more and more help for me. You know, Ryan Congleton was a godsend. He did a lot of the, you know, the, the day-to-day uh, paperwork for me. You know, I still had to do some paperwork and create bout sheets and distribute the bout sheets and answer questions from production, from management, from from everyone, you know, and, and things of that nature uh, and create a, you know, a, a weekly schedule of when guys were going to fight and kind of map that out to make sure I was doing my best that I could to make sure guys were getting enough opportunities and, and, and could, you know, stay working and pay their bills. Um, but, you know, Ryan came in and helped me out a lot. We expanded our operations staff, Joe Kelly, Christian Printup, and, you know, they, they had guys that could help them and manage the medicals and take that off my plate. Uh, you know, another big godsend was when Zach Light came in because before Zach came in, not only was I putting together the, the main cards, but I was putting together, together the undercards, which, were kind of, which was kind of fun with the exception there were times where I had to go out and fly out, you know, scout guys at the gyms, And then do the ticket consignment program, coordinate that. And that was insane. When Zach came on, he basically completely took that off my shoulders, unless it was a Jersey show or Mohegan Mohegan Sun, which he eventually took over the Mohegan stuff. I was still doing that, so I was doing basically what I would consider four or five jobs at once, working ninety hours uh, ninety hours a week, and it was awesome. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I was living my dream. I mean, that was the goal that I set out to achieve—to be a talent relations executive at the highest level—and that 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 happened. Um, but as fun as it was, and, and as rewarding as it was from a career level, you know, it, I paid a price personally. You know, um, but it's it, it's a ton of hours, and I can't imagine. Joe Silva doing it for 15 years. He's been doing this since 2001. And it's interesting, Jason, how he got hired by the UFC. He was, you know, he was just a fan. He was a guy that read the Wrestling Observer like me and so many of us that, that, that migrated into to the MMA uh, industry as fans. And he would write Dana White letters. He would write the U. And I think even he would write the UFC even before Dana White and the Fertitas were involved. And he'd write these letters critiquing them, offering suggestions about what you know he thinks that they should do to improve the product. And I, from what I was was told, Dana White would read these letters and you know took them to heart and really valued the level of feedback that he got from Joe Silva. And eventually said, "Hey, why don't you just come and work for us? You know, why don't you help us you know build this thing and shape this thing?" And that's exactly what happened. But for him to do this for 15 years, that's the type of run that I don't think we'll ever see. And no disrespect to Sean Shelby. You know, Sean Shelby has been very successful thus far. But, you know, is he going to be able to do it at this level, 50-plus shows for 15 years like Joe Silva? I don't think anyone's ever going to be able to do it as a matchmaker at that level. I don't think we're going to see a run like this ever again. He's essentially, Joe Silva's essentially the Cal Ripken or the Lou Gehrig of matchmakers.
0: You know, one of the questions that uh, I got from a, a listener was, you know, asking if we thought we would see Joe Silva continue matchmaking, you know, asking maybe World Series of Fighting 1, Bellator, Horizon. And, and I, I don't think we're going to see Joe Silva again.
1: Nah. I think, you know, I, I don't think we'll see him as an MMA day-to-day professional. I, I just I, – I think that – I couldn't imagine, and no offense to World Series of Fighting or any other organization, I couldn't imagine Joe Silva having any interest making fights for any other organization other than the UFC. And from my perspective, you know, when, when I left Bellator, I was you know offered a lot of different opportunities, and you know I appreciated people thinking of me and offering those those me those opportunities, but I really had very little interest in those opportunities because once you do it at that Bellator level. Taking a step back, it's just not something that really is exciting. And for me, the opportunities that were different than MMA, that were outside of MMA, were more appealing than matchmaking at a lower level. And I could, I, you know, I don't know Joe Silva. I can't speak for him, but I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that he, he he's philosophically, he feels the same way.
0: I did get asked this, and uh, the World Series of Fighting, did they ever come to you?
1: No, they did not come to me directly. There was someone that approached me indirectly, but for legal reasons, I cannot comment on that further.
0: And, uh, you know, it was a question, and uh, it got asked on the com, so I always like to try to, to bring that out there. But, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. I, I think in terms of uh, the aftermath of all this with Joe Silva, it, it simply is going to be is do we see a, a change in philosophy in matchmaking?
1: I don't think we will. I think Sean Shelby has spent quite a few years, you know, Studying and learning from Joe Silva, I think he's done a tremendous job. You know, everyone that I've spoken to speaks highly of Sean Shelby. I'm not going to say the transition will be seamless. Joe Silva has very big shoes to fill, but the UFC is very fortunate that they have someone like Sean Shelby, who's very equipped to take on even more responsibility. If a Sean Shelby didn't exist and Joe Silva was making this move, I think the UFC would be in trouble, and I think that the way they would do business would would be very different. Almost out of necessity,
0: and uh, you know, it's it's I, I use this term all the time. It's just a it's an interesting time in MMA. You know, do we see more of the um, Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz f- type fights? You know, fights that uh, maybe don't make sense from a, a rankings aspect, but make sense from the business aspect. You know, a merit based system, I guess you'd say.
1: You know, I've heard from a lot of people complaining about the UFC's matchmaking and the change in matchmaking philosophy and that they're not going by rankings or even, you know, their own rankings. And they're just making fights that they feel can draw the, the most amount of money. And, yes, there are some fights where you can raise those questions that have been made lately. You know, Dan Henderson versus Michael Bisping, you know, guys like Jacare and, and, and Weidman and also Rockhold getting passed over for that shot for, for Dan Henderson. Uh, you know, McGregor versus Diaz, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense from a ranking standpoint, but that's not the original fight the UFC wanted to make. They wanted to make McGregor versus do- Dos Anjos. You know, Nate Diaz versus McGregor, that was a byproduct of Dos Anjos getting injured and, and them needing to do something on short notice with with, with Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, that, that made sense for them. And, yes, some matchups have been made that I think are being made more with an eye towards box office potential than – you know, maybe a sport-based aspect, but from my perspective, Jason, I don't see a big difference in that. And, you know, this is not the first year where we've seen matches made in the UFC based on, you know, box office potential. I mean, how many times did Dana White, you know, when there was a guy that was on a winning streak, you know, in years past, did he say, well, you know, he, he's just not ready for that shot yet. You know, and, you know, we saw fights like James Toney versus Randy Couture. We saw, you know, Kimbo Slice in the UFC. We saw him fight Houston Alexander. We saw Sean Gannon in the UFC. You know, we, we, we've we seen the UFC do stuff over the years that wa- that wasn't strictly from the playbook of a sport-based promotion. You know, they, they did things to make money. So, to me, I don't see the difference. I, I really don't. I mean, the, the, yes, there's been some questionable bookings for title fights, you know, over the course of last year. But, you know, if you do the research... You're going to find some questionable decisions have taken place even before this year.
0: I'll tell you, every time someone you know, brings up the fact of you know, Dos Anjos lost out of that McGregor fight, I mean, you talk about the amount of money that RDA has lost over the last nine months. Because he's lost
1: on- his money, he's lost his title. I
0: mean, I mean, we're we're probably talking millions of dollars. I mean, you, you would imagine that he had pay per view points for UFC one ninety six, and you know, and, and the UFC has been pretty public about how you know that the, that where that pay per view ranks in, in terms of pay per view buys, and that's the one thing I always every time Dos Anjos's name come up, that that's like the first thing I, I come up with is like, man, this guy lost millions of dollars,
1: and it's interesting because. You know, someone that's been involved in the industry, you know, there's been big fights that have been made, and you would hear after the fact that so and so had a major injury. And I'm not talking about like the Tito Ortiz stuff where he puts that out there right after his fight to have a built-in excuse so that he can retain some of his credibility going into his next fight and remain a box office draw. I'm talking about guys that the information never went public. You found out through a manager, you found out through a trainer or you found out from training partners that this guy had a torn ACL. This guy fought with a dislocated shoulder. He fought with a broken hand and they do that when it's a super big fight because they know even if they lose, it's a payday that they can't miss out on. You know, there's a lot of guys at that Big fight level, the Dos Anjos-McGregor level, when they acknowledge this is the biggest payday of my career, and they basically decide once the battle agreement signed, no matter what happens in this camp, I'm setting foot in this cage. Even if I suffer an injury that could make me more susceptible to losing, I'll take that risk. I'll take the potential of losing the fight because I need the money that this payday may never come around again. And, you know, there are certain fighters in Rafael Dos Anjos' position that would have fought with that injury, and had he done that, yes, he would have lost his title in all probability, and, and come off a loss, and maybe taking a loss that he otherwise might not have had to uh, suffer from. But he'd have millions upon millions of dollars yeah. in his bank account right now.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's a story that that you hear very often, but uh, you know you talk about fighter relations, Sam. You know, obviously the. MMAFA PFA comes up and, you know, it, we have been, you know, you have been critical. I have been critical and uh, we got to give a lot of credit to Rob Macy for reaching out to us. And uh, we had the opportunity to have a, a long conversation with him. Um, I hope that our listeners get something out of this. And, uh, you know, when we come back, we'll, we'll wrap up this edition of the MMA Insiders podcast and, and talk a little bit about what uh, Rob had to say with us. So here's uh, the interview we, we did with Rob Macy. Sam, joining us now here on the podcast is a man that a lot of people in the MMA industry know for his involvement with the MMA FA, Rob Macy. Rob, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. How, first off, how are things going?
2: Oh good just busy thanks for having me on guys obviously there's a lot of
0: things to to talk about with the MMAFA, um you know and I think that there's there's a lot of questions that that fans of the sport have and fighters have a sport and, and where I want to start off first is why is your organization an association and not a union
2: uh, largely because our tactics and our end goal are different than Uh, negotiating with one single entity we decided to go the association route at least for the time being because we don't foresee a scenario where a union negotiating against a single entity monopoly will obtain sufficient gains so our strategy has been we need to create mechanisms to enhance competition first and ideally you know somewhere down the road the members may decide we want to flip and become a union at that point the model that would be used would be sag screen actors guild where the union would negotiate standards for multiple promoters at once not one that's the reason we went the association route we could have gone uh you know the union signature card route three four years ago we decided not to for the reasons i just said the ufc is a dominant monopoly they have sufficient cash to fund operations for a substantial period of time and really the only lever left at that point uh, for the fighters would be to strike and we just don't foresee a scenario where a strike would last long enough to generate sufficient gains to generate to justify that risk
1: is the fear rob that they would break the strike by making it finance by offering financial incentives for their top main inventors to, to, to walk the picket line?
2: I'm not even sure we, we, we even get that far. The, the fear is because of you know the vast disparity in, in leverage, the, the UFC could conceivably do nothing but run fight pass shows and fund their operations. How long are these guys going to strike for? We just don't see that as a viable alternative. Now, in the league sports, the league sports have internal mechanisms that that we don't have in MMA with the UFC. They have 30 to 32 teams that bid internally amongst each other. There is a free agency mechanism. With the UFC, that wouldn't be true, even if you had a CBA. A a CBA also ends what we see at this time as a real threat, the antitrust suit. Uh, A CBA would halt damages, and it would also, in essence, cement the UFC's monopoly because it's an exemption from manager's liability. They wouldn't have to change any of their practices.
1: And another big difference, and would love to get your insight on this, between a union and a trade association is the collection of dues. Can you talk a little bit more about that and educate us on that? Sure.
2: So I, I've been doing this for quite a while, as you know when i visit with guys i always tell them we don't we are not asking for dues at all the other sports associations are funded with a group licensing mechanism and that's why a logo was important if we can't you know generate sufficient funds through group licensing programs fire us we're pretty confident we could do that now that's not to say you know somewhere down the down the line the members would decide themselves they want to adopt a dues mechanism as well but the, the other sports have been so successful with group licensing the dues are, are literally collected and then put into what they call a rainy day fund they're not used to fund operations at all when i was doing my visits you know as you guys know 75 percent or so of fighters are struggling <clears throat> they make you know 30 35,000 a year and that's when they're in the ufc prior to that they're making very little at all even the prospect of you know fifty dollars a month is undoable for a large large segment of the fighter population which is why from day one we've never we've said we are not asking you for dues if you guys decide later you want to do them that's okay that's not our plan
0: let me ask you this rob how is the mma fa right now I, it, it literally is the budget essentially uh, essentially like a startup company? I mean, it's just people who, yourself and other people currently involved in it, you are the ones funding it?
2: Uh, literally, that's the case. Yes, that's exactly right. There is no outside funding. Um, anything we do, it's because I, either I pitched in or others have pitched in to, to fund what what we're doing.
1: That's a, that's a major contribution. That's a major sacrifice. Let's kind of go back to the beginning, your involvement in MMA as a whole, and then possibly some background in your decision to kind of take it to the next level and start the idea of a fighter's association?
2: Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So in, I, I got to, I went to Cornell law school and when I got there, I was 21, a uh, former athlete. I paid, played baseball through college. And the, the average age at the law school was something like 26 or 27. I felt, I don't want to say out of place, Uh, but a little bit out of place. So I was looking for a sport to do. Lucky for me, um, some undergraduates, juniors and seniors, uh, and and a few law students started a grappling club that we did in the Cornell wrestling room. So I started going to that, and that was my introduction to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, in fact, at that time, you guys know, so the first UFC was in 1993, I don't think I saw an event until probably 95 or 96. And it was because, you know, I kind of viewed it, oh, this is kind of a blood sport and they're taking advantage of people. When I finally saw the first one, I was, I was hooked. I was kind of addicted to it. I was like, that was awesome. When I started jujitsu, jitsu I show up and the, and the guy who was teaching it, so a senior at Cornell, he was about 5'10", 155 pounds, And at that, at that time I was 5'11 about 200. And he said, yeah, come on, let's roll. I'm like with you, I'm going to toss you around. He goes, okay. After being tapped out and choked about 10 times in three minutes, uh, my appreciation grew substantially, obviously. So after law school, I moved out um, to Los Angeles twice. And I ended up at 10th planet Eddie Bravo's gym. One of our teammates, Gets called up to take a fight against Josh Thompson on the undercard. I believe it was UFC 42. So all of our teammates drove out to LA to watch him. So that that was my first time, kind of wondering about the business side of MMA. The, the reason that came up is that I'm I'm in the arena. I'm looking around. There's something like 14,000 fans there. They're selling merchandise. They're on pay-per-view, and that, at that time they were claiming they were losing money. I didn't believe that then. After the fight, our teammate comes into the crowd asking to borrow money to get home to Oregon. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. At that time, pay was 2000 to win, or 2000 to show, 2000 to win. But the fighters also had to cover their extra corner if they brought them out, and they all do. And they had to cover their medicals. So literally, these guys were paying to fight at that time. Because of my, my family history, my brother was a baseball player through high school. He was drafted uh, out of high school, entered the minor league system. He ended up making the majors in 93. And he, was, he didn't watch the strike. He was a striker in 94. So I sort of understood what the MLBPA did and, and how it worked and operated, the benefits it provided, and the licensing mechanism. After going to that event, seeing, you know, our teammate come out, having to borrow money to get home to Oregon, it was around that time that I first thought these guys need the association. So for the next few years, my contact circle was pretty much limited to Southern California, and it was through jiu-jitsu tournaments. We would do tournaments at uh, Chris Brennan's gym in Orange County. So one scenario that came up was Chris Brennan had had a fighter, Erica Montoya, who was flown out to Florida, told she was fighting an opponent uh, like with a four and one record, 135 pounds. She shows up in Florida, the opponent's 13 and one, collegiate all-American wrestler, and 20 pounds heavier than she was told. So Chris Brennan said, "Erica, you can't take that fight. That's not what we signed at all. Unless he pays you more." The response to Erica was he kicked her out of the hotel in Florida. We did a small claims suit against the King of the Cage. Erica won. Year about a year later, similar scenario with Pride. Fighter had uh, like a four fight contract. I want to say a two year term with Pride. They had given them three fights. The two-year term was coming to a close. They weren't releasing him. They didn't give him the fight. I initially filed a lawsuit in Orange County for the fighter against Pride because that's what Pride said they wanted to do. They had offices in Los Angeles file it there. We filed. Pride filed the motion to dismiss based on the arbitration clause in the contract. So I said, okay. Filed an arbitration in Japan. That fighter obtained an extra fight as a settlement from pride to get out of that lawsuit. I was doing kind of things like this for around five years, largely to build, you know, contacts I had to meet the guys. I was limited to Southern California for the most part. The the time when, you know, sort of a broader spectrum of people knew who I was and what we were trying to do happened for us around elite XC, that, that scenario, when Elite XC was essentially not promoting shows, it was apparent they were not going to be an ongoing enterprise. But they weren't releasing fighters either. They were just holding the contracts. Agents came to me, and they said, Hey, we, we have ten guys. We have five guys. How, how do we do this? We can't all file suit. It'll be cost prohibitive. I did the research, and I proved up to the agents you can file a suit as an association on behalf of the members. We drafted the complaint. We forwarded it to Elite XC with a demand letter that gave them seven days to respond. If they didn't, we were going to file. We had a series of conference calls over the next week. Elite XC asked for a brief extension because they were in negotiations to have the contracts acquired. And literally days after, Strikeforce announced the purchase. After that event, now when I called agents and gyms, I got meetings.
0: And, you know, Rob, a lot of fans have become familiar with your organization. I think in particularly over, uh, you know, the last year or so, uh, you know, with the antitrust lawsuit that's going on. And also the Ali Act. And and I've been very public that I don't think the Ali Act has a chance of getting passed. I I think it's great what you guys are trying to do, but I, I just don't see, A, it's getting passed, and, B, it's not being enforced in boxing. So what makes you believe that if this were to somehow get passed, that it actually would be there would be someone out there that would police it?
2: So a few comments on that. When have boxers ever filed a collective action as an association against a promoter? They've never done that. We we were the first. That's one of the intents of the association. That will be the watchdog. We can file the lawsuits. That's on the enforcement side. Now, backing up a step, the ALI Act is in some ways self-enforcing. So the disclosure requirements where the promoters have to disclose revenues from ballots and contracts to the athletic commission's, the promoters sign under penalty of perjury a document that says they've done this. For the vast majority of them, they've done that. That in and of itself is a huge benefit. In, in MMA, as you guys know, fighters are negotiating deals with little to no idea what their events generate in revenue. How, how can a Connor McGregor or a Ronda Rousey or a Ryan Bader or any fighter negotiate what they think is a fair split when well, they don't know what the pie is. All act requires that disclosure. That would be a huge benefit in and of itself. Uh, the All Act also requires the ABC to draft and post form contracts that boxers can go on, download for use with managers and promoters. That would be a huge benefit to fighters. If they don't have that. I don't know if you guys have ever compared boxing promotional agreements with MMA promotional agreements. They're they're not alike at all.
1: MMA no, they're, v- they're vast they're vastly different. You are right about that.
2: Yeah, they're vastly different, and and you know that that's a function of a few things: one, lack of competition; two, a dominant monopoly; three, they don't have this law. Boxers get a form that the F, or the ABC approves. MMA doesn't have that. That would be a huge benefit.
1: But in certain areas, my personal feeling is the Ali Act, when applied to MMA, can be cumbersome in certain areas. What was the theory and thought behind going with the Ali Act and adopting it to MMA as opposed to maybe writing a new bill specifically geared towards MMA from scratch?
2: Sure. Uh, one, it, it's not necessary. Uh, the Ali Act applies to any combat sport. Now, there's a there's one tweak you have to make to make the Ali Act applicable to MMA, and I'll get to that. But the, the Ali Act components are essentially this: ABC, uh, the Association of Boxing Commissions, adopt form contracts and post them. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Next one: protection from coercive contract provisions, and really what that applies to is the Fedor-Randy Couture situation. Fedor won the challenge for Randy's title. Randy won the fight Fedor. The the hang-up was UFC was requiring a long-term promotional agreement with Fedor to make that fight. The Aliak comes in and says, no, you only get one year. You cannot require more than one year uh, as a precondition to obtaining that title bout. It doesn't prevent long-term contracts overall with promotions just as a precondition to obtaining that title fight. I don't think most people have problems with that. Disclosures of revenues earned from bouts to the fighters. I think that's fair. Next one, requires promoters to disclose all agreements to the commission. No secret side agreements. If you read the history of the ALI Act, it talks about this. Promoters inevitably use secret side payments and side agreements to control boxers. That's why they prohibited it. Prohibits conflicts of interest. Once you get beyond the local level, it says your manager cannot be your promoter. And the logic behind that is sound. Your manager is not negotiating against himself or herself. I don't think anybody has an issue with that. Private right of action to enforce. This is usually underestimated by many in the public. So when people say the ALI Act is not enforced, typically they're, they're searching for where are the filed lawsuits. There are numerous times when agents like a Sam Spira or somebody of that, you know, ilk will send a demand letter to the promoter that says, if you do not do X, Y, and Z, or if you don't sit down and negotiate, we're going to file this ALIAC claim. And inevitably they settle. That would be a huge benefit. It's leverage. Here's the part that people don't like. It's the independent rankings component the Aliak comes in and says the promoter cannot issue its own titles and it can't issue its own rank. That has to be a third party. In our view, that's necessary to be a sport. Otherwise what's going on is not a sport. And in fact, they admit it. They're copying the business model of the WWE, which is fictional scripted entertainment and applying it to a sport Well, one
1: of sorry to cut you off there, but when have they? Is there a record of, of, and they being the UFC, have they ever come out and stated that?
2: I, I believe they have. In fact, you can search interviews with Lorenzo Fertitta where he says the very first thing he did was download WWE 10K statements because their business model was phenomenal.
1: Oh, wait, oh, yeah. right, but that could mean that could mean that they admire Vince McMahon and the way and the business moves that he's made, not necessarily how they script and choreograph their their bouts. Uh, but you know, there's a lot that you, uh, as a promoter, you can learn from Vince McMahon, regardless of whether you're a boxing promoter, MMA promoter, kickboxing promoter. I mean, Vince McMahon has been doing this for a long time. It, it, you know, is there? a a clear cut statement where they've, I mean, to your knowledge, is there a clear cut statement that, that the Renzo has put out where he said they, they, you know, they've really modeled everything from outside business doings to, to how they do business inside the cage.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not intimating that they're, you know, scripting what goes on in the cage. Not at all. What goes on in the cage, that's an athletic event. What, what the UFC has done is they control the rankings and ascension ladder. No other sport is that allowed. This is the only one. Not in boxing, not in tennis, not in golf, certainly not in the league sports. If you win, you ascend. That's it. Ben Ashren is foreclosed from competing at the top level. Not because he's not good enough, because they didn't want him in there. No other sport allows that. That's what they did. By controlling the ranking mechanism, now I can go to a fighter and say, Hey, do you want to emerge from the undercard and get promoted on pay-per-view? Sign this. Because if you don't, you're not. You want to fight for a title? Here's your new eight-fight deal. Because if you don't sign it, you don't get the shot. That's what's going on. What? Sorry,
1: Jason, I know Jason has a question. Sorry to cut you off, Jason. Sure, sure. What about, uh, Rob, what about in boxing, though, you know, especially during the 80s? You know, I've been a boxing fan for a long time. I mean, the... The the sanctioning bodies put out the rankings, but, you know, I, I can, I, I've heard all kinds of stories from people, you know, involved with boxing in that era, t- era telling me that, you know, if you wanted a guy ranked somewhere, all you'd do is open up your checkbook.
2: Yeah, that's 100% true. And it, no, no doubt about it, uh, some of the boxing sanctioning bodies have had bouts of corruption. There's no doubt, no question about that two things one we're starting fresh i'm convinced we get smart people in a room work with the abc we can adopt a much better model that will work better two even with that being the case boxers earn far more because now like let's use rory mcdonald as an example he fights out his ufc contract he's ranked number four I, i believe that's what he was ranked somewhere around there number four in the world If he retained that ranking, now all kinds of people want to bet on him because he's a fight or two away from a title fight. Under the UFC's model, he just dropped out of the rankings. Again, that's not a sport. Rory earned his ranking. Let me
0: ask you this. When it comes to the Ali Act, if if it's two years from now, three years from now, however long it may be, and sure. it, it's not get, go you know whether it even gets to four or whatnot. Let's say it doesn't happen. Is there a plan B of how you plan to help out fighters, uh, improve economic conditions if you are unable to uh, you know help get the Ali Act to, you know uh, become a federal law?
2: Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So that that was one of the critiques of us. You know, what have you guys done? You're not really seeking to improve the economic conditions. Our our sort of response back to that is everything we do is to improve the economic conditions how do we do that we have to enhance and create competition without that you're you're essentially bargaining with a single entity monopoly with no free agency now if you look at all the other league sports they saw their salary salaries dramatically rise when they obtained free agent rights not before before they had very minimal gains usually at the bottom level because that that was a concession the owners were willing to make. We'll give you a small peanut for the bottom guys. Top level guys, not helped at all until free agency. That's why we're using the antitrust tool. That's exactly what it seeks to create. Seeks to remedy the monopolistic abuse that we see as happening. Seeks damages for the prior actions and it seeks change in behavior. You can no longer do X, Y, and Z. Without that threat, your only tool left is strike. We think that's a, an error in approach that reflects one of two things, a misunderstanding of the market realities or two um, sort of a opportunistic attempt to enter the market prior to resolution of our antitrust suit. Now, what else What else we would do, so let's, let's say the Act fails, do we have a plan B? All along, we're organizing fighters. That That goes on daily. Fighters join our message groups every day. We educate them. Fighters educate each other. Here's why we're in the predicament we are in. They speak with each other. As that comfort level increases, you're going to see more and more of them go public. We're doing that every day. We we go to the ABC uh, to push things that we see as pro fighter. So so no, I mean if all the Ali act fails, are we finished uh, and our our strategy failed? No, not at all.
1: One question I definitely wanted to ask you was with regards to Representative Mullen. Uh, you know the UFC they're you know lobbying against. The passage of the Ali Act and they're, you know they 're spending money to lobby that's that 's just the indi- that 's you know how the practice works they 've taken criticism for that. What I wanted to ask you today though ha- you know was we you know sources have told me that representative mullen he was lobbied himself by you guys
2: yeah, so the extent of our lobbying with representative Mullen was we sort of researched who our targets were in washington d c What of the fighters suggested Mullen and Thankfully, because I had forgot, he mentioned that Mullen was a former fighter, which is true. We reached out, contacted Mullen's office, arranged a meeting, flew out to D.C. and met with him. That was the extent of our lobbying.
1: That's it. As part of that practice, though, did you have to pay a fee to to his office? No, absolutely not. Okay.
2: The the only expenses we spent were flights, uh, our own hotels, and dinners.
1: So you—that's—that's—that's right, that's that's, that's different from what I've told. Because typically, a lot of DC lobbying is you—you know—it's you pay for that time. You pay for the the congressman, you know, the the senator or state or the representative that that you meet with. You you're paying for that time. Yeah, so it, no, it, that's absolutely
2: not true. In, in fact, you know, I, I think we spoke about it briefly before. This is a shoestring operation, right? There's no outside funding. We have no outside funding sources. Uh, you know, there's not big money backing us. This is literally grassroots fighters and a few, um, you know, organizing committee members like myself who assist are going out and doing this ourselves. We, the, we paid no fee. We've made no donation, nothing like that.
0: One of the things that uh, can get brought up uh, about Representative Mullen is what happens if he doesn't win re-election. You know, Are are you confident that someone else will um, continue the work that he has been doing? I mean, I understand that there's co-sponsors of this bill, but is there any concern from the MAFA that uh, if he's not reelected, that that could create a major problem for the Ali Act taking the next step?
2: Uh, no, I mean, of course, you know, we would prefer the original sponsor to remain on uh, in, in no small part because he's lived it himself. He, he was very happy that we took the flight to visit with him. First thing he said, I've been waiting. Thank you for coming. I'm ready. Let's do this. Are you guys ready? That's what he asked us. Are you guys ready? Uh, you know, if he loses his reelection bid, does the act fail? No. Um, Joseph Kennedy out of Massachusetts is Democratic sponsor and there's four other Republican sponsors on the bill now, so it, w- it would still continue you know obviously our
1: preferences Mullen continues to push it want to shift attention now to the formation and the announcement of the PFA. When that announcement was made there was a lot of press and you had a response to their formation and their announcement in an interview that you did with forbes.com uh, you were you know you were a little bit critical of them i was cuz i was kind of surprised to see that can you talk about that as well and kind of illuminate us on that
2: sure um, so yeah pfa's announcement i knew about a week ahead of time not before uh which caught us by surprise typically when there's a group of fighters already organizing themselves if people want to truly assist fighters in organizing they would have reached out to that group these guys didn't do that so that that was sort of issue number one for us and it's not that you know our guys are better we were first that's not fair nothing like that it's hey there's already an organizing effort going on Why don't you pull the same rope, see where it goes, as opposed to creating a new rope? You're splitting the group. That was issue one. Issue two, from a strategic standpoint, we think their approach is entirely incorrect. Their goals are completely subversive of what we are trying to do. If they were successful, formed up, entered into a CBA tomorrow, In essence, what they are doing is cementing the UFC's monopoly, because now the UFC is immune from antitrust. That's the real legal threat, and they don't have to change their behavior anymore. Everything continues as is. We think strategically that's an error.
1: What about... I mean you, you feel like you know that, that they should have contacted you but why not express your concerns to, to Jeff Boris and the PFA privately rather than try to degrade them in public.
2: Nothing to do with degrading. I, I don't think my comments degraded them.
1: Well it we, questioned, we it questioned their, it question it questioned their credibility a little bit. I, I mean I can understand that you you would have concerns but aren't you if the if the UFC's opposed to a, a trade association and if they're opposed to a union and you're saying comments that could be perceived that are discrediting the PFA and their uh, you know, philosophy on a union, aren't you essentially doing the UFC's dirty work for them?
2: Well, you know, as you know, we're, we're in a situation where, one, there's going to be confusion, and in the, in there, there is and was. Two, we have to differentiate why we took the approach we did. And in all honesty, that's difficult for us to do in a tweet. Our strategy is a little more complex than we're going to sit down and bargain an agreement. That's why we kind of had to make a statement in public.
0: In terms of the current UFC fighter, What would you say to them and why, if they're looking at uh, putting their support behind your organization or the PFA, why would you tell them that the MMAFA is better for them, not just now, but also long-term?
2: Yeah, great question. So the very first response is, I would say the MMAFA is not mine. It's not me. It's fighters. Fighters are doing this. Fighters are speaking. You see them in public. We're not press release heroes. We didn't just see a contract in February and decide, oh, that's cool. I'm going to enter that industry. We're not learning the industry. Fighters themselves speak for us. That's the biggest difference. Who speaks for their side? Jeff and Lucas.
0: But Lucas has helped out Nick Diaz.
2: Sure, on a legal matter, yeah.
0: That's related to fighting
2: related to his athletic commission issue yes
0: which is related to fighting
2: sure but the point remains why aren't fighters speaking for the pfa there were none at that press conference there have been none since
0: why at, why is a ufc fighter would you show up to that press conference
2: why would you yeah why would you we wouldn't have done the press conference unless we had fighters lined up it
1: wouldn't have happened Hey, Leslie Smith was there, correct? She was. And she, I mean, did she? She. My understanding is she still is on the roster with the UFC. Yes. But why is your or why would the MMA FA
0: be better short term and long term for the fighter? How are you? How is the plan to help fighters out with medical pension? Just as two examples. uh, How would the MMAFA help these fighters that way?
2: We are not going to get sufficient gains through the bargaining process until we can create an environment of competition. That's the first answer. We have to do that. When that happens, fighters' pay and benefits will increase. Second reason, we're not seeking 3% of your purse. We should be able to fund all operations and provide benefits to you through group licensing it works in every other sport we're not asking right off the top three percent before providing anything third reason it's fighters fighters will decide that was one of the incorrect critiques about us it's not elected not true it is elected will be elected fighter members i'm not a member
0: and fighters would elect the representatives for the PFA as well.
2: Correct. They, they were trying to distinguish us from them by claiming that wasn't the case with us. That's not true.
1: Boris also mentioned during that press conference, he referenced a conversation he had on his cell phone with Ari Emanuel, one of the new principal owners of the UFC. In doing that from a legal standpoint, did, did uh jeff boris possibly cross a line there so the the way i would
2: answer that is uh, you know like jeff boris one of the people that i look up to is marvin miller he was the founder of the nlbpa marvin miller would never socialize or call owners to ask about union never he would sit down to bargain with them after the union was formed but he's not calling them to ask him about it not only did he call he met with lorenzo and dana and then called Lorenzo and Dana, and then called Ari. What's the point of that? At minimum, it creates at least the appearance of conflict and collusion, which is why you don't do it. Because of your involvement
0: with the antitrust lawsuit, do you have a conflict of interest?
2: Not at all. Why? In fact, the the interests are almost completely aligned with our strategy. Our strategy is use the tools available to create competition one of the tools available was the antitrust lawsuit
0: what would you say to people that would say your motives are about more tearing down the ufc than helping fighters
2: oh not true at all and that's kind of why i went through uh you know my background in the sport i, I was doing things with other promotions long before the ufc Sued King of the Cage, sued Pride. Uh, have helped fighters with management agreements, um, sponsor deal, all, all kinds of things over the years. Most of it didn't get press. Uh, many of those intentionally. Either the fighter didn't want it publicized, or I didn't want it publicized. But it's not, it's not UFC per se. It's the it's the market environment it needs to be fixed. There's a reason the splits between boxing and MMA are completely inversed.
0: One of the things that I brought up recently is the situation that's currently going on um, or has been going on with Titan Fighting Championships and Andrew Whitney. Has the MMA FA reached out to Andrew Whitney to advise him of his uh, current situation in terms of what legal options may be available to him?
2: So for, for that case, I, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with that scenario. Now, to answer that question more generally, we don't have time to address five, 600 individual unique situations. The, the things that we try to address um, with our resources is, is, one, we focus on organizing, and two, situations that will impact all fighters together, not one, because so we just don't have the resources, and that's no different than any of the other associations or unions. They don't have the resources to individually litigate everyone's personal claim.
0: Are not you familiar I, with the story? To,
2: we can't. I, I'm not familiar with that story, no.
0: So no one in the MMAFA under, knows that Andrew Whitney made comments about being tired of making $3,000, and then he is pulled from the fight Within the, a couple of days?
2: I can't say no one knows. I don't know. Now, I can say the story you just told me is a story we hear every day. Every day. Like, no, that's not an exaggeration. That story is not unique at all. We would advise, an, an, was it Andrew Whitney? Yes. Yes. Andrew, contact the fighters involved with the MMAFA. That's exactly the type of scenario we are attempting to fix. When you guys get organized, that's going to happen far less. Why would he not contact you? He's free to, sure. Most fighters tend to be more comfortable talking to fighters.
1: Another question I had for you, Rob. In the seven years you've been meeting with fighters and trying to educate them about you know organizing and forming a trade association under the MMAFA, especially UFC fighters, have they expressed to you a fear of repercussions from the UFC if they go public with any desire they would have to join the MMAFA? And if so, have they ever gotten into specifics about the things that they feel would happen to their career if they came forward?
2: Uh, yes, to both questions. There is some level of fear. Some fighters, uh, and this is kind of, it seems typical of fighters in general when, when they're in fight camp or they have a bout coming up they literally focus on just that anything outside of that is a uh, distraction so that that's kind of a hurdle that we all have in terms of have they expressed fear of reper- repercussion or what's going to happen with their careers yeah that's frequent and that's kind of our job to organize them together to build the comfort level to where they are comfortable going public You're seeing that more and more over the past six months. That's not coincidental. You're seeing extension practices. If you talk to agents, extension practices have changed. You're seeing more free agents now. We don't believe that's coincidental. The agents don't believe that's coincidental. They think it's a direct result of the lawsuit we filed. They're changing behavior already. I can't prove that seems to be the case.
0: In terms of free agency, um, a couple of things I, I want to mention. You mentioned kind of about the managers or promoters. Are, are you totally against a manager being a promoter at any level in MMA? Uh, also, what's your thoughts on organizations having um, matching rights to, to uh, match a fighter's contract?
2: So the first question, the answer is no, and that's a good question. People, um, some, at least some people, have the perception that we're against, you know, any manager promoter. Just, from, you know, from the reality of combat sports at the local level, it's almost a necessity because you're, you're not, you're gonna, there's gonna be sort of uh, not enough promoters if you don't allow managers to promote. So at the local level, we're fine with that as well. The the way that we, the current draft of the expansion act attempts to address this is. <clears throat> In boxing, it says anything over eight rounds. Well, we don't have eight rounds in MMA, so what uh, Mullins' office did is say any bout less than 11 minutes under the theory that the local level will change to three three-minute rounds or two five-minute rounds. We're fine with that. Once you get up to you know the regional level where events are starting to be televised, we think the conflicts rules are in place for good reason. And then your second question, I'm sorry, I'm in forgotten. terms of,
0: of uh, promotions having a matching right, where uh, you know you know you know fighter John Doe, no matter where he's fighting, his contract expires, and he you know fight goes out there and gets an offer from uh, you know promotion B, and, and promotion A sure. still has an opportunity to match that contract. Uh, you know, is that something that you Basically, would the like Eddie
2: situation. Yes. Yeah. No. That's a, that's a great question as well. Uh, now, from um, kind of the association standpoint, matching rights, exclusive negotiating periods, things like that, are anathema to a free market. There, there, there really is truly no free, true free agency in MMA. There's limited free agency, and that's because in order to become a true free agent, a fighter would have to fight sit out his exclusive negotiating period, which tends to be 90 days, sit out the matching rights period, which tends to be a year. So now you're at 15 months, and that's assuming his fight was recent. Typically, the fighter, um, if he had not re-signed a deal, what goes on in mixed martial arts is the fighter had already sat out eight months to a year before getting his final fight. So the the fighter's facing the prospect of fighting one-time and approximately three years to obtain true free agency. Do, uh, do we look at those clauses favorably? No. Just like all the other sports, they chill free market.
1: Uh, you know, I, and I, I really am anti-matching clause, and people want to say that's um, hypocritical in that I, I worked in talent relations for an organization that had that clause and exercised it. I can tell you that I didn't write the beltor contracts and and you know it's that was far above my pay grade the decision to enforce those. I'm not a fan of it, Rob and Jason because you look at it it exists in the NBA, I believe it exists in the NFL as well. The difference there between MMA and the NFL and NBA is there's a league, there's a, there's a league office that that legislates and enforces bylaws. And, you know, there, there's standard writing that goes into those matching agreements in the NBA contracts and there's standard forms, standard ways to match it. And then ultimately the NBA league office, they legislate and they enforce that 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 uh, the matching rights. Um, you look at MMA, there is no league office that presides above the promotions. Each promotion is an individual entity. So if there is a dispute. It doesn't go to a league office. Unfortunately, the only recourse for a fighter when there is a dispute is to go through the court of law. And it takes a lot longer to get a ruling from a court than it does from a league office. And that's, that's one reason why I've never understood how matching rights in MMA were valid. I, I totally agree with everything you said, Sam. The only thing I would add is
2: uh, you know, the matching rights in the other league sports were bargained for. And typically, the matching rights are limited to say one year. If the fighter, you know, stays with his team, the next year he becomes a true free agent. It's his choice; he can go out and shop or not. That,
1: that's not um, necessarily but, true. If 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 a basketball player is a restricted free agent, he signs a five-year deal. You know, he's with the Orlando right. Magic, signs a five-year deal with the Golden State Warriors, and the Magic matches that deal. If it's a five-year deal, he goes back to the Magic for five years.
2: Yeah, no, agreed. What what I was saying is, if that if that player that basketball player didn't sign the five-year deal, he could essentially replay with his team under a one-year contract.
1: That is, true. That is correct.
2: And then that the next year, he's a free agent. You're right. You're right. In, in in MMA, that's never true. And what you said is exactly correct. If the promoter ends up tying the fighter up by claiming a match that the fighter doesn't want, essentially what you have is a fighter facing the prospect of sitting out two years while this is litigated. Very few fighters have the resources to do that, and certainly none of them have. The, I mean, their careers are short. Who wants to sit out two years when you're, you know, your career might be three years, five years, eight years? They're, they're short.
0: Rob, I know we've talked a lot about uh, the UFC-level fighter, but how would the MMA FA help out the fighter on the quote-unquote regional scene?
2: the ALI Act would greatly help the fighters on the regional scene in just a few ways, form contracts. That would be way better than what they have now. Um, Creating competitions, So when they do emerge from the regional level, they have more places to go. There's bidding, their value increases, lobbying. They benefit from all the lobbying efforts that we do. And and by lobbying, I, I don't mean, you know, paying or making donations. I mean, showing up and visiting, showing up to ABC. Uh, annual conventions, meeting with commissioners, meeting with congressmen uh, and women, things like that. We do those those things that benefit all fighters. (laughs) Um, And then if we can get, if the ALIAC comes into place and rankings become independent, we anticipate a scenario where a regional fighter can come up through a Titan or an RFA, or one of these other organizations, if they retain their rank, those promoters can conceivably stay with those fighters throughout their career.
0: Final question for me, Rob. You know, obviously yeah. the MMAFA has been around for, for some time, and, and the PFA has you know just been around for uh, officially, publicly for for about a month now. How, how would you say since the MMAFA has been around that? They, that the MAF has improved economic conditions for fighters.
2: That's why I was kind of walking through. I mean, if you talk to agents, they will say extension practices have changed already. Matching practices have changed, already changed, because we filed the lawsuit. Again, that's anecdotal. I can't prove it, but talk to people. They're saying it. They're seeing it. We're seeing in the market... Fighters are, are now signing with Bellator and being allowed to leave.
1: Rob, one, one thing ago. I want to add there, if I could. Yeah. He, yeah. Rob makes a good point, you know, to anyone listening. I can tell you that, you know, being inside of Bellator, whenever there was a matching situation, there was a wait until the very last day, you know, to the last hour. Now what I'm starting to see and here is that, you know, once the UFC decides that they're not going to match, they don't wait out that full period, they notify and, you know, a, a fighter is allowed to move on quicker from what I've been told. Yeah, I, I 100% agree, Sam. So two,
2: three years ago, pre-suit, what Sam said is absolutely true. They would wait out the entire period and notify you very close to the end. Now, within a week of that promotional agreement coming up, they're telling the fighter, yeah, we release you. Before, that didn't happen. That's improved the conditions for all fighters, not just UFC fighters, because now there is at least some partial mechanism of uh, bidding that can occur. Fighters aren't being forced to sit out a year before they can field an offer. Things like that. It's, ar- it's already helped. And then, you know, the, the aside from that, and, and I used to do more of this in the past because I, I had to 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 meet people and to gain contacts. We used to do the individual suit, the Elite XC type action. We, we did those, did them for years. Fighters benefited. I, I, I flew fighters into press events. Some had medical procedures performed because they were flown into a press event that was televised, things like that. We, we've done those things. We don't publicize them because the fighter has to, and if the fighter doesn't, we're not. But we've done a lot of things behind the scenes people don't know about. Fighters know.
1: And I've got one last question for you, because as I'm sure you're aware, I've been critical at times when there was the press conference in San Jose to announce the antitrust lawsuit. You spoke briefly at that press conference and you got very emotional. And it kind of surprised me, caught me a little off guard, wanted to give you the forum, the opportunity to kind of take us through, walk us through, talk about the range of emotions and what you were experiencing at that moment.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Sam. And I actually forgot about this. So at, at the press conference, I, I did. I got, I got choked up. There, there was no tears, but it got to the point where it was difficult for me to speak. And it was, you know, it surprised me, to be honest with you. I, I, I walk up to the podium. And it was like 10 years flashes, you know, in the back of your eyes immediately that happened. And at that time I was thinking about, I traveled all over the country, meeting with agents, meeting with law firms. It took years to get that suit filed. It wasn't a month, two months. It took years, literally. I took a second mortgage out of my house to fund these things, to fund the MMAFA, to fund the antitrust investigation, to get that suit filed. What was kind of heartbreaking for me at that time was during these meetings, agents and fighters would tell me, please hurry, please hurry, please hurry. And and the reason they were saying that is the statute of limitations on antitrust suits dates back four years from filing date. So guys were getting told. And by told, meaning their claims were no longer valid under our suit because they were too old. I was in those meetings where guys were tearing up. Hurry, hurry. My fights were 09. My fights were early 2010. Hurry. I felt I disappointed some of those guys. Another fighter greatly assisted all of my efforts in getting that suit filed. He wanted one thing. He wanted his name on the complaint. Couldn't give it to him. That hurt me. Those were the reasons that I kind of got emotional in that moment you know, is it something I'm proud of? No. I wish it didn't happen. Sure, but I'm o- I'm okay with it.
1: Well, it was good to get your perspective on that. You know, there's a lot of information that you just you know divulged there that I had no idea. I had no idea that you took out a second mor- to me the second mortgage on, on your home. That that's crazy. That's a, it shows a tremendous level of compassion for the fighters and a tremendous commitment. To, to your belief there. But, you know, we do want to thank you for coming on. I, you know, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. I realize you're extremely busy right now. There's been a lot of movement from what I understand – uh, regarding the the antitrust lawsuit and I'm sure you've uh you're, you've got your hands full and, and uh you're up to your neck in work but we do want to appreciate we do want to say we appreciate you coming on uh you know and I I have to acknowledge I was very critical and and you know not everyone would have handled it with the grace that you did and I'm very appreciative of that and uh glad we had this opportunity to talk to you and, and get educated on some of these issues here
2: Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Sam and uh, Jason. And, yeah, I realize, you know, we we say critical things in public, that that's okay. We we can still have a civil conversation. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. Come on.
0: And there is our interview with Rob Macy. And uh, really appreciate Rob taking the time out to talk to us and and give his side of the story there, Sam. Obviously uh, some things that uh, we knew, but also some things that we didn't know.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it was very illuminating. I used that word during the interview, but I'm gonna use it again here and and be redundant. You know, I had been told that not only did they lobby Representative Mullen, but you know, as part of that lobbying effort, you know, they paid to get that time with Representative Mullen. Obviously I was wrong. That information I got was incorrect, and according to Rob, that's you know, that was not the case. So it was good to get that information. You know, it was good to also talk about Rob breaking down at that press conference to announce the antitrust lawsuit because everyone knows I was very critical of that. And I I still think, you know, that might have been the wrong emotional reaction, but I can understand why he felt that level of emotion. It was also, you know, good to speak with him because, you know. In hindsight, I do regret questioning his motives. I don't necessarily agree with some of his tactics, you know, uh, criticizing the PFA publicly. And, you know, I don't necessarily know if, you know, the Ali Act is the best way to go about things. You know, I don't know if a fighters trade association is better than, you know, a union But uh, I I do regret questioning his motives because I I really have to acknowledge here I no longer believe that he has ulterior motives. I I believe that he is sincere. When someone tells you they've taken out a second mortgage on their home to finance the ability to go on meetings and educate fighters and speak with them, I, I, I think that's not necessarily a guy that wants a financial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I think he truly cares about the fighters. And even though I don't necessarily agree with all of his methods and motives at times, I have to acknowledge that I don't think he has ulterior motives. I believe he's sincere. I believe he sincerely wants to help fighters.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the second mortgage was was a very interesting thing. I just, I, you know, look, I I, I understand where and, and respect what Rob is trying to do. I just, I don't think the Ali Act's going to happen, and um, you know, and and you listen to what he what you know he he said to us is you know obviously the Ali Act plays a huge uh, part of that. And, uh, I just think that that's a, a very, very long road before that ever happens. But, you know, I, you know, I've said on this podcast, I think if you're a fighter and you are, um, you want to put your support, whether it's behind the MAFA or PFA, you should talk to both organizations and, and just make a, a decision that is best for you, not just now, but, but also long-term, you know, and, uh. You know, obviously, uh, me and him kind of went a little bit back and forth there on Lucas Middlebrook. <laughs> but, uh, you yes. know, Luke, yeah. Lucas has helped out Nick Diaz from a fighting aspect. That's plain and simple.
1: And, and another, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, basically a poison pill aspect in, in Rob's, you know, game plan. You know, by going with the Ali Act, if it doesn't pass, you know, really w- what is there? And I think another poison pill, let's say the Ali Act is passed. There's still a poison pill there, and that's counting on the fact that, that there will be viable competition that rises up against the UFC because you can have that rating system, you can have the one, limits on one year contracts for fighters, you know you, you can you can do all of that. but is there going to be an other another organization that rises up that has the leadership and the vision and the ability to execute that vision? That can operate in such an efficient manner that it can, you know, when those fighters do become available after their one-year deals are done, do they have enough money in the coffers to to to, to go after more than a couple guys every year?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, we talked about this on the last episode of, of the podcast. You know, I, I look at at you know, and obviously Bellator right now is the you know number two in this industry, and. Yeah. You know, I I wonder, and look, I think it's absolutely tremendous. They're going out there and they're overpaying to get you know talent like uh, a Phil Davis, uh, a Matt Mitrione, a Benson Henderson, a Rory McDonald. You know, um, but all to say is they got to make money on those those fighters at the end of the day. I mean, at the end of the day, it's got to be it's got to you know be a two way street. It's got to work out for the fighter. It's also got to work out uh, for the promotion as well. And that's what I kind of I, I wonder about is how Bellator is able to to make money off of Rory McDonald. I mean who knows, maybe they go to Canada multiple times with him and, and it's a huge financial success for them. Um, you know, that's you know but also I would love to see a third organization, you know, with right. you know could a World Series of fighting um put themselves in a financial situation where um it, it makes sense to go out there and be paying them all of them a mar the uh, you know, hundred and forty, dollars dollars $170,000 a fight with a, a show and win money. I mean, that's, you know, ultimately as, as fighters, um, you know, you want all these organizations to succeed. And, and the air thing is, and I mean, in the regional scene, the pay not, is not good on the regional scene. And, and I don't know really if that's ever going to change because I think for a majority of those promotions, um, you know, they're either losing money or they're just breaking even.
1: No, well, I do want to back up a little bit because you talked about the deals for Rory McDonald and Ben Henderson. The question I have, because I think you make a good point. how many of those contracts can they take on? You talk about monetization, whether or not they can monetize those contracts. That's a big question that you raise there, Jason. And you know, for, for free agency to truly benefit more than just five or six guys. Bellator has to be in the bidding process for every significant free agent. I think a good test case here coming up will be Lorenz Larkin. Lorenz Larkin is not a needle needle mover. In my opinion, he's making a pretty decent amount of money from the UFC, but he has rebuffed attempts to resign, is going to test the waters of free agency here. If Bellator doesn't value a guy like that and doesn't get involved in the bidding process – because they don't see him as a needle mover and they've already got enough money committed into the Mitri, and Ben Henderson's and Rory McDonald's. And they pass on a guy, a mid-level guy like that. Not only d- does he, you know, not have the ability to go back, you know, to, to make more than what he's making now and drive that price up. But if he has to go back to the UFC, the UFC can cut their offer. He could actually end up taking a pay cut. So yes. in order for this to really work, Bellator has to be in a position where they can go in and, and bid on a bunch of guys. Anytime a, a, a legitimate guy becomes a free agent, that they're be that they're able to bid on them because if they get to their if they have a max of guys like McDonald and Henderson that they can take on and they, they decide you know we're only going to go for the top top guys we're not going to go for the mid-level guys there's only going to be a few people a few fighters in the in the, in the industry that that receive any kind of benefit from from Bellator you know taking on some of these salaries it's going to be a very limited amount of guys that can drive their asking price up.
0: I mean, you could put, find yourself maybe in an Aljamain Sterling situation where Bellator really wasn't uh, interested to uh, to bring him in. I mean, I look at Lorenz Larkin, and, and you know he's been on a nice run since going 170 pounds, but you know his last disclosed pay, um, you know for his fight uh, at UFC 202 was thirty nine thousand uh, to show and thirty nine thousand to win. I, I don't see, I just don't see Bellator. I don't see them putting an offer out there that's going to scare the UFC.
1: I agree. And a lot of people are saying, well, he used to work with Scott Coker when he was in Strike Force. Yeah, but 39 and 39 for Lorenz Larkin, I, you know, even Scott Coker wanted to pay that to so Lorenz Larkin. He's got to get, you know, approval, I would think, at, at the corporate level. And I don't mean maybe the Viacom <laughs> corporate level, but there's got to be someone at Spike TV. That he would have to get a contract of that level approved by, and I just don't see—I don't see him having enough ammunition to say, "Hey, we're going to pay Lorenz Larkin." You know, he's making thirty-nine and thirty-nine with the UFC. We've got to offer him forty-five and forty-five or seventy flat. I just don't see that getting getting approved.
0: Yeah, I mean, I—I I, I, when I look at it, and I mean, look at the end of the day, and, and it gets talked about a lot. You know, Bellator is a television property, and it's about bringing the biggest ratings to Spike TV. I mean, uh, let's be honest. If you had Lorenz Larkin headline, uh, you know, just a regular Bellator card against whoever, is that going to bring a million-plus viewers to Spike TV? I don't see it, Sam.
1: No, because you have the, the, you know, in-house developed guys like Chandler, Patricio, Daniel Strauss, uh, you know, maybe even a Pat Curran. All those guys, you know, they would they would draw a bigger rating than than, than Lorenz Larkin in that in that headlining spot, especially yeah, I mean, a guy like Patricio Pitbull, who you talked about last week. This guy is a proven ratings draw in Bellator.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's just. I uh, and I mean, I think for I mean, look, Lorenz Larkin's a very talented fighter. He has a fighting style that all promoters love, but you know, at the end of the day, he's just not. You're not going to put Lorenz Larkin on a poster, and all of a sudden, I mean. Uh, you know, let me just use the analogy. Okay, I live in Tampa. Bellator comes to uh, Tampa. Let, let's just say they wanted to to go to the the Amway Arena where the Tampa Bay Lightning play. You put Lorenz Larkin on a poster. I'm sorry, that's not pushing tickets in Tampa.
1: Like, yeah, and I don't think we're saying, Jason, that Lorenz Larkin can't be a needle mover you talked about his style you know he's a great style but he's not there yet and no one's gonna pay him on potential in MMA you're you're, you don't get paid it's very rare that you get paid on potential in MMA unless you're a high level uh you know amateur wrestler with with tremendous credentials a guy like Lorenzo Larkin he's not gonna get the money that he's probably desiring until he proves that he's a ratings draw
0: yeah and also I think that you know in terms of you know it's He's a top fifteen at one seventy, especially coming off that win against Neil Magny. Um, but you know, also part of it's got to be in in part of that decision process. If your Bellator is sitting there, is does you know does he have that personality? And I, I don't think we've really gotten to know Lawrence Larkin in the UFC. Maybe he does have this great personality and a, a personality that that can sell fights. But I just I just don't see that being a guy that. Um, that Bellator's going to overpay for, because we, we've talked about it. it. It doesn't matter who you are. Bellator knows they have to essentially, for the most part, overpay for any free agent that, that fights out his UFC deal, because at the end of the day, the UFC's going to have matching rights. And, and if you put out – I mean, if they put out a 45-and-45 45 45 offer for Lawrence Larkin, I think it gets
1: matched. Pro- probably. no probably now, If does. they go
0: 50000 know, guaranteed provider more – I, I don't I'm not sure the UFC would match,
1: you know, and you're not saying that they would do that offer. But if they did, then they'd be paying Lorenz Larkin based on potential. And we've seen that. Yes, Bellator is willing to spend a lot of money, but they're not willing to pay a lot of money for potential. What a guy could become. You have to already be established, and they've gotten away. You know, if it was about potential and they were interested in building guys from the ground up, they would be spending more time and resources in, into homegrown guys. And, you know, since there's been the regime regime change, there's definitely been a shift on the development and investment on homegrown fighters within Bellator.
0: Yeah, it should be interesting. But, uh, you know, Sam, coming up this weekend, it is UFC 203. CM Punk, Mickey Gall, are you are 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 you, are you going to uh, make your way out to a local uh, establishment to watch this? Are you that interested?
1: I'm gonna watch. Well, here's the thing: Do I want to go out, deal with all that for a fight that's probably gonna last two minutes and gonna show up on my Facebook timeline? Do I do I want to go through all that? That's, trouble?
0: And, and I've talked about that um, a lot. Is that, that really is one of the biggest problems the UFC faces? You know, um, how many times after. Uh, there's a big big fight. I remember after UFC 202, I, I was uh, the next morning I was going through my Facebook timeline and the full fight video w- was right there on my timeline.
1: It's just crazy watching the footage of CM Punk in his camp because, yes, I respect him a lot. I, I do. But he's at the UFC level, so you have to evaluate him as a UFC level fighter. And I've never seen anyone with such... Say green striking technique as CM Punk. I, I just haven't seen that, you know. And maybe he, maybe he's improved in the last couple months because I know some of this footage that we watch is, is delayed. It's been taped over a long period of time, but you know, and, and yeah, you can be effective with unorthodox striking in MMA. You can, but I don't know if this is necessarily effective unorthodox striking that we're seeing from CM Punk where it's I think it's more of a case where it's just flawed raw and and still developing, but it's so raw. It's like, he is, you know, he is basically showing he is what he is. He's not advanced. I don't think he's behind, but he's not advanced. He is just a regular guy. This, you know, if, if there was a regular guy in your office, as you listen to this, if there was the guy next to you in your office, or the guy that you see mowing the lawn across the street from you right now, that guy started training MMA with no combat sports background you know, his progress would be pretty similar to what you're seeing from CM Punk. Um, and, you know, can that guy go in and fight in the octagon? The obvious answer is no. And and we're, we're seeing just CM Punk is proving just how difficult it is and how much time and how much training is required before you even get to, to sniff that UFC level. And yes, he's not fighting a true UFC level guy, but Mickey Gall is no joke. And it's just, uh, this is is a huge mismatch. It really is a huge mismatch. I feel bad from CM Punk because he's putting in the time. He's putting in the commitment. You know, he's only taking an opportunity that was extended to him. He's taking an opportunity that many of us would if it was extended to us. It's just that uh, they haven't done him any favors by matching him up with Mickey Gall. It just, there's no opportunity for him to have any chance to succeed here.
0: Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be in Atlanta on on Saturday night, so I will probably uh, I'll probably pop this fight up on my computer. Uh, you You'll know, watch
1: video. it as a meme. It'll be so short, it'll be a meme. <laughs> you
0: know, I, I gotta watch all these fights because of, of the pre and, and post fight shows that I do. Uh, you know, uh, on the MMA Report with uh, the stuff that I do with uh, my colleague at the Daniel Gavon. We always do these preview and, and post fight shows, so I'll, I'll watch the fights. Um, I'll probably you know just be sitting in my hotel room. Uh yeah because uh that that wake up call on Sunday morning comes pretty early for me Sam. So uh usually it's about 6:30 uh Sunday morning that wake up call as I I'll start to uh, head to uh head to the stadium week 1. It's it's god I, it's, I can't believe week 1 of the NFL season's already here Sam.
1: I know and I'm glad the Eagles are playing the Browns week 1 cuz that means they're going to start one and know but after that I don't know.
0: I tell I you know. uh, the the Bucks played the Browns uh week 3 of the preseason. Yeah, that is uh
1: It's a bye week. It's an early bye week for you. That
0: that is is a – Browns are awful, Jason. They're awful. They're a developing team, Sam. Oh, (laughs) you're saying that
1: because you work for an NFL team and you can't be as critical as me. They are an awful team. They've been an awful team for a long time. How many GMs and coaches have they gone through in the last five years? I think they've got the
0: right coach, though. I I think in terms of of developing an offense, and and that's an organization since obviously the – the Brown the, the, have come back to Cleveland with that expansion team. What was that nineteen ninety nine when they when the Browns uh, were, came back into the league? Um, I mean, all the quarterbacks that, that they have been through. I mean, I think that Hugh Jackson at some point will find that guy. I mean, you know, I think RG three is just really a, a stopgap, you know, for that, <laughs> that organization. Yeah, uh, until, I would hope so. You know, until they they find that guy that, that's going to step in there, and uh, I mean, look, it's. Uh, you know Josh Gordon, who's going to be suspended for the first four games of the year. Uh, you know he played in that preseason game here in Tampa, and uh, when he when they get him back, I mean, I, I think you're going to see a lot of deep balls being thrown. Uh, you know, to, to Josh. That is Gordon. if he doesn't
1: get suspended again.
0: I tell you, the I cra- can't stay clean. He can't. Here, the crazy stat um, on Josh Gordon and uh, is he has missed 31 of the last 36 Cleveland Brown games due to suspension.
1: He's a straight-up hardcore addict. I don't think you can count on him ever. I'm surprised he's still in the Browns organization. I know it's only a four-game suspension, but there's no guarantee he's going to even see the field this year.
0: Yeah, it's. uh, but, you know, this is a time of year that I absolutely love. Uh, I'm I'm a very busy man
1: this time of
0: the year, but uh, I absolutely love it, and, uh, you know, it's – I'm looking forward to it, so uh, we'll see what happens uh, this Saturday. UFC 203, obviously CM Punk, Mickey Gall, is going to be the, the fight that brings it, but also you have the heavyweight uh, title fight in the main event. I'll start over in challenging A. Miocic. Also, you've got uh, the co-main event, uh, which, by the way, I don't think it should be the co-main event. I would make CM Punk, Mickey Gall, the co-main event. But uh, Fabricio Verdum, the former champion, taking on Travis Brown, uh rematch from their fight uh, that took place back in, uh, what was that, 2015, I want to say? maybe Yeah, I think it was 2015 when uh, Verdum just uh, put on a clinic a- against Travis Brown. So that's all coming up uh, Saturday night, UFC 203. And uh, I know there's some regional shows going on this weekend as well, so you definitely want to check all that out. Of course, you, w- you want to uh, uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. SoundCloud, dot com, MA so many places to check out this show. Of course, we, we really do appreciate if you could uh, you know, rate and review this show on iTunes. We, we really appreciate that. Yeah, we so. haven't
1: gotten one in a long time, Jason. The, the, the audience, I'm calling you guys out. I've been calling people out. I'm calling the audience out. You guys need to step up, get to iTunes. Take a minute. Give us a rating. Make it good.
0: And, of course, uh, we'll be back uh, next week to talk about what else is going on MA because uh, you never know what Mike Bricks. Sam, as always, man, appreciate time, and uh, we'll talk again next week, man.
1: Follow you then Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter.
2: Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan
0: MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast
1: on Radio Influence.